0: Welcome to the Master Intention Podcast, where we talk to top mobile game experts about their experiences running successful games. Uh, my name is Mike, and I work on the marketing team. Uh, this podcast is presented by UserWise. Uh, UserWise is a live ops engine for your mobile games. Uh, we put the power in your hands with easy to use live ops tools that help retain your players. Uh, this week, uh, Tom is talking to Kanul Mordekar, COO at Yuzu Games, and they're going to be talking about finding and hiring the right people for your game studio. Um, so when you stop and think about it, uh, oftentimes what makes a game special isn't necessarily the graphics or the gameplay or the plot. It's the people that work tirelessly behind the scenes to make this game a uh, reality and make it happen. Uh, so they'll be talking about finding the right people, uh, some of Kanul's uh, ideas on the hiring process, and how important good workplace relationships are um, for success in the gaming industry. Uh, some good tips here. Um, so hope you enjoy it. I'm going to hand it off to Tom and Kanul.
1: Hi everyone! Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Um, man, I, I feel great today. This is going to be a lot of fun um, today. I have uh, Kunal Mordekar with us, who is the COO and head of Yuzo Games in India. Um, mm-hmm. Dude, I'm I've, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Um, I I don't get to talk to as many uh, folks over in the Indian game industry as I'd like to, but like. You guys are doing amazing stuff and like there's so much talent over there so whenever I do get the chance it's great. Just got to work out the time zones but uh but I'm I've been excited for this one for a while. Um but uh before we dive into things like I always like to ask how did you you know get into games like how did you end up where you are what's your story?
2: Okay. Uh that's, that's a good question man I think uh, it it goes back when I was a gamer. Uh, obviously, I think most of us start off being gamers first, oh, yeah. you know, I grew up uh, going to my neighbor's place, uh, you know, uh, sort of bribing him with my video game uh, CDs and uh, or cassettes and getting playtime on his PC because my <laughs> parents never gave me one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I just keep doing that while I grew. Then I was just addicted to it. I would go to a lot of cafes, keep playing and then accidentally ended up in computer science for my mm-hmm. graduation. Uh, surprisingly, uh, uh, at that time, my, my parents somehow uh, read about the gaming industry and stuff. And uh, there, was, there was this, uh, what do you say, a seminar kind of a thing in the city where I live. And uh, he rolled uh, sort of enrolled me. I went there, took up a diploma course in game design at that time. Uh, did that. And uh, while I was there, of course, I had this visiting faculty by the name, Rohit Gupta, who was actually the founder of a, of a gaming company called Rollicle Games back then. It was just a startup, but, uh, you know, he was a visiting faculty. He kind of liked my projects and uh, sort of offered me an internship. And that's how I got in. And, uh, because it was a startup, you know, you have to get your hands dirty in uh, everywhere you can. Like, uh, because of my computer science background, he asked me to primarily be a programmer and uh, support game design as well. And that's how I got into the industry, really. And from there onwards, uh, being one of the first five employees of the company, we, st- we got funding, started expanding. Then we needed producers, we needed... Uh, you know, more artists, started hiring, just, just growing the team from there. And, uh, it, it all, it all just fell into place one after the other. Uh, I was, that was pretty much first five years of my career. Um, and then, Nazara, I was at Nazara games in Mumbai, uh, specifically a game designer there, um, yeah. following that, um, uh, joined Usuania. In fact, I was the. Uh, second employee in user india, I uh, did not join user India at a, uh, at a management position. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I joined it as a producer. Um, mm-hmm. While I did, uh, right from making you know uh, job descriptions and tests and signing up recruitment uh, uh, recruiters and stuff for us, I did almost everything or supported uh, mm-hmm. the CEO then in doing uh, setting up the entire thing here and eventually uh, ended up uh, running the place.
1: So, yeah, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, you you started from all the way up. That's fantastic. Um, (laughs) Wow. Um, So you talk about something that is not really I don't know. I feel like folks don't go over this too much in the industry. and And I think it might be an interesting topic to to dwell into first, um, before I get to my other questions. Um, sure. and And that's really I feel like just about everyone that I've talked to in the gaming industry, everyone has this like secret uh, dream of of one day running their own studio and like having the full creative artistry to create whatever they want. Um, but you know, as we both know, starting a studio and scaling it up and recruiting, it's not an easy feat. Um, But I I specifically want to talk about, you know, you took it from two people to, I don't know how many people you are right now, but what was your process for creating tests? Um, Like, did you learn anything? Like, did you create a test that was ever way too hard or or way too easy or, yeah, what's your approach to that? Maybe, I don't know, you got different roles. So maybe we start with like your your programmers. How did you find um, them, met them? So thankfully, I did start off uh, in the industry as a programmer,
2: right? Uh, so I kind of knew uh, uh, the technologies from a programmer's perspective at that time, uh, especially Unity uh, Engine. That is something that is very widely and commonly used in the industry. Uh, yeah. I had a lot of experience working on iOS. So Um, But the time I actually worked on IS, I'm talking about um, C back then, Uh, uh, you know, uh, before the Swift and everything came into picture, I'm talking about that time. And uh, so this experience basically sort of helped me uh, with, uh, you know, uh, what what are my expectations from a programmer as such when I'm hiring one. I obviously uh, went online and looked at a lot of other job descriptions as well that a lot of companies out there uh, have on their websites. It's it's free information, freely available information. You can always go on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm following pages like Ubisoft, Sumo Digital. I'm I'm following everyone, right? So yeah. they obviously happen to post their uh, job descriptions up there, and you kind of get a picture of you know what it is that. Uh, you can look for what it is that you should be looking for and then obviously uh you have your own strategy or your own plan uh, which i had from my ceo then so i kind of figured what technology we need what is the experience we need sort of put that together and come up with your own job description but it's very important that you are very honest about your uh, requirements in your role. So it's it's not just about, you know, looking someone up and just copy pasting it, but it's it's imp- like you can get clues from that, but shouldn't be used as it's, you need to put in your requirements very clearly. Uh, the clearer you are while hiring, I think the longer they stick around because they know exactly what they're getting into. Uh, and obviously you have some bad hires, you also have a lot of many good hires that come out of it. Uh, and over the process, you tweak your job descriptions and your requirements as you go. And uh, once you have the seniors in place,
1: um, they can take it from there. So. Gotcha. So it's about hiring the right people that then can go on and kind of build their team, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ever or have you ever, and I haven't, honestly, but I just had an mm-hmm. idea for it, um, Have you ever like applied to somewhere just to like go through their process to see like what sort of tests do they have to do? What's their interview process like, you know, just to see like, what can you learn and kind of take back? Uh,
2: Actually not, to be honest, I've never done that. Uh, But I'm very curious when uh, someone else gets a job Uh, or when someone else, uh, you know, someone on my team is moving out and uh, they just we just have a one-on-one and i kind of try and ask you know do you mind if you share the test with me or do you mind if you could discuss how we interview went? you know just use the experiences to build on but never really did that myself but now that you say it i think it's
1: actually not a very bad idea yeah but sometimes sometimes but they just sometimes they just come to me but i'll have yeah. to maybe try myself a little bit too <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but but uh i i, I hope uh, we don't waste too much
2: time for the for the recruiter on the other side though. because we also need to understand that the
1: company's investing their time right uh, this is true yes i i didn't put on my my company hat um it, it's <laughs> always hard to balance uh um, it is it is so think about it from that perspective uh, honestly this is something that i struggle with like um There's a lot of developers out there, um, but I I imagine you've experienced, I I know that I have, um, you know, there are very mediocre developers like me um, and then, you know, every tier up, you know, it's not like, okay, you add two times and you get something. It's like, it's like 10 or a hundred times is like a a step up. And then there's like, you know, a thousand times, you know, going the step above that um, you know, each tier. So, but I always kind of balance it or I always struggle with, when do you give them like a programming test to like vet that? Because it is so frustrating when you invest all this time, like interviewing someone and they seem perfect and they say all the right things and they sound great. And then they just can't code at all. Um, (laughs) So it's like, okay, well, do we, do we give them a test to try to go through that? But then, you know, are, are the very best programmers going to be like, well, I want to talk to someone first. And I want like, I want you to sell me on the company or whatnot. Like, have you found like a good balance or an approach of, you know, when do you interview? When do you test to both balance, like the candidate time? Cause you don't want to make them all take tests and stuff beforehand, but you also got to balance like the company time and how long it takes to interview them.
2: Um. Uh- to be very honest with you here, I usually try and keep the test as upfront as possible uh, before mm-hmm. I begin the rest of the uh, interviewing process, uh, so to speak. Um, I would ideally uh, like to put it this way that um, I, if I have now, now I'm. it's safe to assume that I have a team to help me hire here. Yeah yeah so then generally what I, what I would like to do is let's say if I'm hiring a developer I'll probably get uh, one of my developers to uh, take out some time have a quick chat with this uh, with this candidate get uh, get a get a wide check with the person uh, come back just give me a brief of uh, how how things go there. And if it sounds good, then you can, uh, you can always have your HR team sort of get back to them and check if they are open to a test around that time. Uh, because what I really want to do is, uh, use the initial white check conversation to sort of give a brief about, uh, my company to the, to the candidate as well, uh, get an idea of the candidates requirements, uh, or, you know, what their aspirations, are more than requirements, I would say aspirations. Like it's it's very important you match those uh, and uh, the requirements of the company and the aspirations of the candidate should match, and that's that's when you are like the perfect fit. Uh, if that is not really you know a perfect fit or a good fit, then I make sure that uh, in the second round when uh, when my HR is sort of. Just having reported board with the candidate, they mention it that this is a little different, um, and do you still want to explore the opportunity? And then, this, if if the candidate at that point is still on board, I think that's that's when I would want to roll out the uh, test ideally, um, mm-hmm. before I actually uh, get the get the senior management involved in the entire process. Uh, but again, uh, it would differ mostly on uh, which position you're hiring at? Like, if you already have your tech lead in position, or your CTO in position in place, then the, probably the, he's going to take care of all of this with um, the HR team, and you don't really need to get into it. But if you are hiring CTO, then sometimes the process is entirely different. You just uh, yourself going around LinkedIn, you know, looking for someone, talking to everyone, uh, and the test at that time probably comes at a uh, at a very later stage, it probably even doesn't. Sometimes, doesn't even come into picture because, at that point, your, that uh, someone's resume and their past uh, work experience is enough for you to sort of say that okay, this guy's done what it and he's expected. No yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Of the uh, the tests that you've done and, and found most successful, like. Uh, I guess in the realm of programmers, like, is it doing like a hacker rank test with algorithms? Is it like, Hey, build this project in unity. There's really no like time frame. with, you know, X, Y, Z, like there's a, a lot of different varieties where uh, some people in the development realm are of the mindset that tests don't really do a good job of testing programmers. Um, because sometimes that stress just freaks people out and they can't actually code in there and you might pass on some really good people. So I'm just generally curious, like what kind of tests have you found to be most successful just within the game programmer realm? Uh,
2: So my favorite tests are the ones that are actually, uh, you know, nitpicking the candidate's uh, brain at his ability to logically think, Uh, especially when it comes to... uh, Uh, Comes to programmer, right? Um, A logical approach to execution of whatever the task is is very important. Uh, A problem solving attitude is very important. Um, So after a certain point, you're not really looking at what kind of technical knowledge or, you know, what kind of uh, uh, how good does he understand the technology itself because By that time, he's worked long enough to have a good idea of those things. But at this time, you just want to uh, kind of think about things like, uh, just ask a quick question. Like, hey, we are making a chess game. You know the rules. Uh, How are you gonna go about, you know, making that? You don't have to do it. Just, Just tell me how you're gonna do it. Or just tell me what thought process you're going through. And then if he comes up with the algorithm right there, uh, you can maybe then um, say, okay, that's good. Are there any scope? Is there any scope for optimization? Because obviously you want to save your, uh, your uh, you know, processor from doing too many calculations for a simpler task. And uh, you know, you just just kind of keep uh, at it until you can see how far that, that can go, can come up with ideas, or even just he's trying to solve it. like." You know, he's troubleshooting it, even you, you, even if you can see that, yep. and you realize that okay, he's got a really good approach at this, uh, because nowadays, the thing is the internet has most of the answers on it, like, you know, uh, and even if you have, uh, if you have someone who is just good at finding solutions and solving problems, uh, they will get you there.
1: That's a really interesting approach i like that a lot actually what about um if we think about like artists is there a slightly Mm -hmm. different approach to how you would you know test and vet artists that you're looking for
2: uh for artists i usually uh just prefer an actual test of whatever they're going to be like if you gonna character artist then yes uh, this is the character i want you to sort of uh, model or texture or animate you know Uh, that's that's pretty straightforward there or if it's a concept artist, then you sort of uh, get your designer to have a design document or something for a character that you can just share with the concept artist and see what the concept artist throws back at you. Sometimes this just surprises you. I mean, they come up with a concept that's much better, and like you never imagined it that way, but it looks really awesome. It's like, okay, uh, that's mind-blowing. Uh, as for the animations and stuff like that, it, it's, it's quite straightforward from, from what kind of work they have submitted in the test. you know. I obviously love to see portfolios before I sort of shell out the test. So if the artist is keeping the portfolios updated, that's right. That's great. That's actually something I've seen a lot. Um, especially while i was hiring here in india that i had a problem with is that most artists or a lot of artists i came across uh, had portfolios that weren't really updated so like they're really good now but the kind of work that i see on their uh, you know art station and stuff like yeah. that is is just beginner stuff and i'm like okay something's wrong
1: uh do you ever find that some artists like a- I know I've heard of this before of like, well, I've done all this work for so-and-so but I can't show it to you because of an NDA or things like that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, cool. Uh, one last thing, you know, related to hiring and then I'll, I'll get off the topic, but I think it's so important. Um, you mentioned you want to be as clear as possible for hiring Um and likely if you get that right, they're going to stick around for longer. Um, You launched this new studio though. How are you, how were you able to be clear in your hiring for a new studio or in this case, like a new startup, you know, when things might change so much, like, you know, you might have a theory of like, Hey, this is the first game we're working on, but your metrics might be crap and you kill that game four or six months in, and you're doing something completely different. So how, how do you, Keep that clearness. Is it about having like a higher level vision, or uh,
2: so? It's it's uh, when when let, let's stick to programmers in this case, right? Uh, now, when you're making a game, uh, there are a lot of many things to it. Like for example, there can be game uh There can be some some programmers who are working on the UI of the game, or uh, you know, just building pipelines or your uh, your build pipelines, you, you know, or your resource pipeline. So. Uh, or especially when you're a startup, which is starting off, you have one developer who's probably doing everything for you, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, so I think the clarity that I was specifically mentioning is this, that sometimes uh, your developers will have reached a point, but they are like, okay, I love gameplay programming, you know, I, I, I want to work on that, I, I don't really... Like to sit and figure out the UI and make sure that it's fitting on all the all the screen sizes. All my all yeah, my... that's me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I, I'm not interested in that. I'm I want to focus on the gameplay. Um, so this is what I was talking about. Like if you are big enough studio where you can have like dedicated people working mm-hmm. on some dedicated projects. Yes, you make it very clear that hey, you are a gameplay programmer and this is what is expected of you. Um, if you're starting off, then you can say uh, you're gonna get everything, and <laughs> uh, that's how it's gonna be. Uh, you can sort of give them an idea in terms of your pipeline, uh, but obviously, uh, like you said, uh, in the gaming uh, gaming business, um, especially with the data, if it's if it's not supporting your game, you're going to um, just the plug on that project and move on to the next one. So yeah. guaranteeing that is definitely, I would say not something that you can do unless you're working on a very big project, which you know for sure is, you know, for, for example, if you're working on the next FIFA, then you, you, you kind of know that the game's coming out. Right? Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's, that's really good to think about. Cool. Um, okay. I wanted to talk a little bit, like you have a lot of experience as a producer Mm -hmm. and I've heard, I don't know, so many different definitions of like what a producer is and what they're supposed to do. So I'm curious, like, you know, when you hear that someone is a producer, like, what does that mean to you? Uh,
2: Okay. Uh, I very much relate to what you said Uh, when, when, you know. Lot of different definitions of producer, uh, but uh, to me, uh, if you are a senior level producer, I'm looking at someone who is able to take my vision for the game or the basic idea or basic premise of what kind of a game I'm wanting to develop, and come up, come back with a with a team size, with the team plan, uh, a possible budget plan to go around it. That says, uh, okay, we we gonna need a team of ten people, or fifteen people to execute this project. Uh, this is this is the kind of budget allocations that I'm doing for it, and with this budget allocations, this is the time that I'm going to give for it. So uh, there was a, there was a, there was a talk that I had attended once, you know, and. Uh, you know, what was said or what was said in the talk was that there are three things or three things you should always remember when you're making a game is there's quality, there's budget, and there's time. And you can always control just two of those factors. For example, if I see my budget is less and I want a uh, extremely good quality project, then the time is not in your hands. It's going to take a lot more time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or if you say that, okay, my budget is really good and I want extremely good, uh, quality, then obviously your time can come down or if you want the lesser time and you want a lesser budget, then you've got to compromise on quality naturally. Hmm. So when I say producer, I am talking about someone who is considering these, these things, who is uh, coordinating with the, with the management or the person in charge of making decisions on terms of what kind of project you're going to be working on. and sort of come up with the best possible uh, plan, team size in terms of, uh, okay, your budget is X. Okay, then this X budget can get you a team size of Y and it's gonna take whatever time it's gonna take to make it. Uh, And then making sure that that is followed throughout the process. And uh, it's it's obviously there are times when you don't really get it, but uh, that's something Everybody knows that you have to play around. With. But yes, someone who is really good at doing this um, is is what I would say uh, the right producer in my head.
1: Yeah. For people that maybe want to be producers or, or maybe people that currently are acting as producers, like mm-hmm. what are some things that you've seen them do or you know, strive to learn or to focus on to you know continue to get better and and improve towards that senior level producer role. I think uh, when it comes to meeting timelines, one of the most difficult
2: things to do is um, come up with uh, estimations, especially from developers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, somehow, my observation always is that. Any task, once the first thing a developer needs a task, uh, he's gonna go, "Oh, I can do this in two days," and I'm like, "You're yeah. gonna take me for this, <laughs> you know?" And and the producer knowing this, that uh, the, um, the the you know the particular team member being so enthusiastic about his work is and the number and uh, as you basically progress in your career, you sort of get better at your estimations and i think getting the absolute right estimations is something that all producers probably um, struggle with um, and i think the second uh, most important thing for a producer i would say is uh, get your hands dirty in all in all the parts or functions involved in that particular game you know like if you if you get a chance sit down and program something, even if it's just like an arcade shooter or something, get an idea of what programming is. Uh, You know, do some artwork, even if it's bad, doesn't look good, it's fine. Just do it so that you know uh, stuff that uh, goes on in that space as well. And this especially helps when you're working in startups or or an environment where you have, uh, or you are trying to hire, a team side, a team that is uh, not too heavy on your pocket, you know? Uh So you, you kind of compromise on the experience levels there. And then if you have the knowledge that certain things can be done in maybe say Maya or 3D Max or something, you can always guide these team members of yours if required. That's really good.
1: Yeah, I like that. I, I think one of the best things that I ever did was learning to code because now mm-hmm. I at least have, you know, a, a rough concept of, yeah, that will probably take five minutes. That will probably take four weeks. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you can get a, a exactly. rough estimation. Um, and And you also will learn that, okay, well, this dev says that will take two days but we probably should add the additional two days in to possibly account for like the two days that they're going to be working on the errors that they're going to encounter before they can even start, you know, doing that coding yeah. or whatever, yeah. um, the random things that just happen, Right. Um, that's great. Um, do you think that, uh, along with that, like timeline thing that it's important to try to learn your team members too? like, you know, a, a more experienced programmer might be better at predicting how long it'll take than someone that's say, maybe more junior or whatnot.
2: Absolutely, yes. And uh, what you just said uh, makes a lot of sense because uh, you should also know your team uh, always, uh, and you should be able to make sure that uh, you minimize the friction within your team members. Uh, you minimize the friction between different functions uh, of, of a team, like if there is a deadline, artwork is required, for the developer to go on and do something uh, the pipelines are not working your IT support is off you know all of those things so knowing exactly uh, who's good at what and how to keep the uh, you know keep everything running ever so smoothly uh, being a people person is of absolute importance there as well yes
1: that's great how often As a producer, do you think you should be talking to people? Um, Like, should I be checking in on a developer every day, every week? My artist, does it kind of vary from person to person? Or, you know, because there's always a balance of like, when you come in and check off, you might throw off their flow. So have you found that there's a right balance?
2: I think... um... The answer to this question depends on the person you're checking in on. Um, generally, you have your stand-ups every day, which gives you a general uh, overview of where the project is going, uh, or you have your project management tools, which is which are sort of telling you stuff about uh, or me- allowing you to measure the progress on the uh, on your project. So that that's good enough, I feel, on on the completion status level. But on on a more personal level, or on a more uh, one-on-one level, I would say, uh, it's it's about uh, the vibe with that person. Like, uh, it's it's probably I I might be a developer who likes to talk every day, so yeah, why not? Maybe come and ask me a few questions every day, and I'll give you an update. Whereas I've seen a lot of artists uh, be like, uh, you know, those who want to be left alone when they are in the zone, and you don't want to be. Uh, talking to a lot, so with them, you want to just take it easy wherever you can. So I think the answer to that question is there is no real thumb rule there, but it's more about uh, getting to know that person and understanding what he is comfortable with and then trying to find a balance with what is required for the ultimate goals of the project and then sort of work it out.
1: What happens if, like, you know, you set these timelines and, you know, even when you add conservative estimates, sometimes things take longer or more often than not, as I'm, like, getting into a project, like, you uncover that there are other projects inside the project that are sometimes even bigger than the thing that you thought you were doing in the first place, right? Um, how do you mitigate when someone is behind, um, timeline and they're going to like miss that. Like, have you ever run into that scenario? I think almost every time. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's your, uh, what's your process for approaching that? Yeah. How do you, how do you help with that?
2: Uh, so I do really believe that uh, if something is not coming across, you need to sort of gauge the importance of having that in the next update. Uh, or like if you're assuming that it's, just a, this is a live ops thing or something, uh, then if it is not very critical or it is not very absolutely required, you might want to uh, keep that featured for, you know, a later time or something uh, and just, just roll out whatever you have is ready uh, or just uh, give that person the same amount of time, maybe see if somebody else on the team can help him or her or that particular team speed up a bit, if that is absolutely important. But at the end of the day, if, if the project requires it absolutely and it's going to take more time, you just have to give that time. <laughs> mm. I, mean, I don't, I don't see a miracle <laughs> happening there. Really.
1: Yeah, so it's a matter of feasibility.
2: Yeah, but ideally, I would, I like to, or I would recommend keeping your updates really short ones, um, so that you can also measure the uh, the metrics around it much clearer. Uh, because if you add too many things in a given update. You never know what really caused the drop in the retention or what really caused the increase in the monetization. Yeah. Uh, you want to you want to be able to roll out smaller updates, check stuff. Again, always have a benchmark rollout as well. So to sort of, you know, match your metrics again against.
1: Yeah. So yeah. When you come to like rolling stuff out, um, do you generally find that, you just roll it out to everyone or, or do you ever try to, you know, have like A-B testing in place and, and hold back groups and such?
2: I think uh, there have been times when I've rolled out to everyone and uh, it has been a mess, uh, especially not just because of what the feature is, but also uh, technical issues that might uh that you might face inside the game. So just an interesting thing that I, I, I would like to share is one of our games uh, that we had released was a Ludo game. Uh, mm-hmm. The primary source for its users was actually organic. Uh, we didn't do much uh, user acquisition over it. So what it requires is that a lot of people are naturally um, coming in to your game. And this usually happens when you're game is in some ways promoted by the app stores in certain spaces Uh, like uh, there's there's a category called explore in google play which is uh, your game showing up next to some other game that someone was browsing it says you might also like or you know showing up in your search bar somewhere now what we observed is that uh, this uh, visibility usually improves when uh, your App is showing the ANRs and the crash rate, which is much lesser than your peers. Uh, so, uh, so you can set up peer groups in your Google Play Dashboard now. Um, so, for example, if, if I have Ludo game, then I would have all the other Ludo games uh, yep. set up as my peers, and I can I can sort of see where do I stand compared to them in terms of my crash rate, my ANR rate, uh, my uh, sleep time, wake time, all of that stuff. And if you're really good in that, what you realize is Google naturally promotes the game or your organics naturally are higher. So this one Mm -hmm. update that we thought had some really cool stuff in terms terms of features and we had missed the deadlines and uh, we were in a rush. so we sort of ended up rolling it out really fast, and we sort of uh, thankfully rolled it out to just ninety nine percent because I always keep that one percent chance for a rollback. Yeah, uh, you know. Uh, and what I realized is uh, it takes a couple of days for the data to come in from Google. Like uh, it takes two or three days for your crash rates and errors to start showing up on, on the dashboard. Yeah, uh, they were really bad for this particular update, and our organics uh, were down by like. Uh, we were getting almost like 15000 users lesser than were daily uh, like if, if we were getting wow. from, uh, and that was i was huge and uh, my AOSA team uh, was came rushing to me and they're like uh, we need to fix this we need to roll this back we need to do something otherwise you know we are losing users really really fast and if it gets bad it takes a very very long time for you to regain that trust, regain that um, confidence with Google and get back up there. So this this hit that we took, uh, we ended up taking almost four months after that to getting back to where we were and even growing beyond that. So uh, my recommendation, roll out 10%, roll out 20%, check how it's going. Um, And this is something, uh, something which is not really feature specific, but more so your app stability specific. Uh, And yes, so ever since then, it's always been rolling out. And if it is features, I would always um, recommend that you keep whatever is your live version rolled out to let's say uh, 50% or maybe 40% of the users. And then if you have two or three other variants that are coming up, Uh, you might want to figure out, okay, one variant A is going out to maybe 10%, variant B is going out to another 10%, so on and so forth. And then use the 50% rollout, which is in your current current build as a benchmark to measure the performance of the other builds compared to that, and then figure out, okay, what's happening. Because uh, what happens is generally, your UA strategies may be changing, your acquisition strategies may be changing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you if you say, if you roll out all the new builds and you do not keep a benchmark of your current build and you suddenly change or maybe change your user acquisition strategy from going, let's say you were acquiring users from India and suddenly you have now started acquiring users from somewhere else. Yep. Um, the user behavior is going to be different, trust me. It's not <laughs> yeah. going to be the same. And if you are sort of comparing that with users from India who are on the on the older version and you don't have a nice differently, of, yeah. Yeah, behaving differently, then you are going to act on incorrect data. So my recommendation, no matter what happens, whenever you're rolling in, out an update or making changes to your game, make sure that your current build is always live in that particular region, wherever you're acquiring users from, and you're always benchmarking the changes against. The same region same world very important so that your data is not screwed
1: yeah that's actually really valuable advice i think i think that's that's fantastic um with this like user acquisition rollout and stuff are there good tools that you can I guess it's been a while since I've actually had an app on the app store, but like, does Google allow you to just roll out the app to a certain population? Um, I I know what I've seen some game studios that I work with um, do is they'll have servers. And so like server one, all the players on server one, which is maybe 10% of the overall population or 5% will always get the new stuff. Um, and they know that it breaks more often, but they kind of like it because they get the new stuff before the other servers do and stuff like that. Um, but they just know that they're going to be the ones that kind of get that experimental stuff. And so it's a way that they can kind of roll it out, but you know, their players talk a lot and they're in guilds and, and and whatnot. And so, you know, if some of them got the new stuff and the other ones didn't, they'd be upset, but because it's within the one server, they can kind of maintain that. Um, do you find that, that rollout is something you have to do, like on your side, or are there some external tools that allow you to, to roll it out?
2: Uh, so, personally, I've always worked on uh, tools that were developed by our own uh, company, like Huzu had a lot of tools that helped do this stuff. Uh, yep. So, uh, honestly, I have not explored the market out there really uh, in terms of what tools can, can be used for this. Uh, Google, as far as I'm aware, it uh, does not allow you to decide a specific population in terms of region yeah. or, uh, or stuff. Maybe your internal test or your public test, open beta test, uh, you can have a region-specific launch. But the actual production field, uh, I think you can just define uh, the percent rollout. Uh, you can't really decide which particular region as such.
1: Right. Okay. That makes sense. Um cool. Uh thinking still within the realm of you know how to iterate on, on things and, and do it well. Um a approach that I've heard some people do is hey, I've been working on this really cool new feature, but instead of rolling that feature out just completely to everyone, we're going to enable it as a live ops event for like a week. Um, and then it goes away. We can look at the data, you know, if it actually improved metrics, maybe we do fully roll it out. Maybe we kill that. Um, maybe we need to make some changes based on the data before we roll it out as like a real feature. Have you ever employed a, a strategy like that?
2: Um, yes, actually we did. Um, uh... It was again for the same game. Uh, uh, we were coming up with this uh, with this update where uh, we were basically focusing on monetization, and it was uh, all about the vanity stuff. Um, and uh, what we wanted to do was we wanted to sort of come up with uh, with your die dice and your tokens and your maps to customize and have like a theme around it, like a desert theme, or a Christmas theme, or a a Diwali theme, you know. Uh, Now what we wanted to test was whether we want to sort of have it like a one-time purchase, like it's out there in the store. You can just come in, buy it, buy whichever you want, um, and be done with it. Then we wanted to test whether it's good to time it. For example, things like these, when they're exclusively available only for a certain period of time. Uh, you kind of create that rush in your users that, hey, uh, it's FOMO, you know, I don't, I don't want to miss out on buying this. I don't want to miss out on getting this. So yeah. um, so so we wanted to see if that helps us boost our revenues uh, or whether we sort of do a gotcha system around it. Do we go loot boxes? Do we have uh, unique loot boxes? And then again, do we want to have these loot boxes throughout or do we want to launch them only as events and yep. get it out you know so yes we did this uh we uh, tried to solve the uh, like i had my designers uh, discussing this um each one coming up with you no know, i think our game requires this to be there all the time someone saying no it has to be a gacha otherwise saying that no the exclusivity is helping us push revenues. so i was like guys just go out and test it And uh, yes, we sort of launched it to a certain population first, which was just like, it was just
1: there.
2: And you can buy it uh, right off the store. And whichever you wanted, like there was no gacha, Like five items out there. You like one, buy one. You like all five, go and buy all five. Or then we had a gacha And we had like common, epic, you know, rare. And, uh, and 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 wanted to see whether the people are buying those gift again and again. And what we realized that Gacha was obviously working better for us, and uh, it worked even better when it was timed. Especially, for example, when Christmas was coming, and we came up with a with a, a Christmas themed dice and a board and everything, and uh, that that would become like the the epic thing to collect, and then we would have many other things going around it. So what we saw that. Because it was time, um, our players would want to like keep buying those loot uh, boxes before they run out of time.
1: Yeah.
2: Wow. Yes, it, it definitely helps, and a lot of your questions, I believe, should be answered by your players and not by yourself or your team. Mm.
1: Yeah. yeah. Are there any? Downsides to doing this, or does this really just come back to the uh, the time, quality, and budget kind of a thing? Where if you don't have a lot of time, you don't have time to do the slow iterative rollout kind of a thing. Uh,
2: it does come back to that, but uh, my counter to that would be: what else would you be doing, right? Unless, uh, like for example, if you have a game that is working well for you and playing live ops, then uh, Take your time, improve the game, as uh, as in how you can do it, because that's what's working for you. Where else would you spend that time wisely? Is is, is the question. If if you have a better better uh, thing lined up, then yeah, probably spend it there. But if you don't really, then why not invest it here?
1: Yeah. that's great. Well, I only have uh, one more question because we're already like out of time. Um, I feel like we could have gone for a couple more hours, Um, but uh, (laughs) I'll be respectful of your time. Um, So because we are on the master retention podcast, I always like to ask, you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson you've kind of learned over the years to keep your players playing for longer? Like, how do you keep them coming back day after day, week after week? Okay,
2: so... I think it's very important to realize that different features and mechanics promote different uh, tension and engagement days. For example, certain mechanics will only promote your attention for day one, probably day up to day three, but it's not going to help you beyond that. And then there are certain mechanics and uh, meta inside of the game that can help you probably have people retained until like day seven, but day fourteen, that's not really going to help you. And probably some that are going to go on and help you retain place for day 30 or it may be even longer. Uh, you know, when 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 I'm talking day 30, when I'm talking, then I'm then I'm thinking right off the bat of my, I'm I'm thinking leads, I'm thinking guilds, I'm thinking clans. Uh, you know, just socializing where people sort of make friends and stick around for a longer period of time. When I'm talking day one, I am thinking the best gameplay experience. Uh, period. Like, uh, it's it's not it's not the loot boxes that you're gonna get. It's not the uh, stuff around it that's gonna keep the person uh, coming back on day one or day zero for that matter. It's it's your game that's gonna do it. It's, it does does the, does your user like what you've built or what play you've built for that player. Uh, a lot of times it also depends on where you're acquiring these users from. Uh, you know, uh, for example, if you're making a word game, uh, no point in acquiring users that like playing Game of War or Clash of Clans, you know. Uh, you, you, want to, you want to bring the right audience in. You want to uh, show them the right creatives while you're bringing the audience in and then measure the metric or your key player instead. Uh, when you're talking uh, day two, day three, uh, I'm, I'm talking the loot boxes are probably coming in or unlocking is coming in. You're unlocking something new. You're progressing in a story or you're doing something. Like content is coming, you know. Um, that, is, that is keeping you going. Now, obviously, it will be different from game to game based on what genre and what kind of game you're making. Uh, probably if you're making an RPG then or an MMORPG, then it's all about uncovering new places, uh, uncovering new equipment, Facing new bosses, different yeah you know, that that keeps happening. Then 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 the players gonna be interested. Or if you're uh, if you if you're talking games like you know, let's say Golf Clash or something like that, then you're talking about unlocking different golf courses, unlocking different golf bats, uh unlocking different balls, and and you know tournaments and stuff like that. So that keeps you going. Uh, but I feel that one of the most uh, or very lessly talked about thing that really helps in your retention is the UI and the UX. Uh, if your players don't understand how to go about playing a game or how to go about navigate themselves in the game or, um, you know, like the polished feel of the game as soon as they see it, they're probably going to be gone even if they actually like your gameplay or probably n- never stick around long enough. To figure out your gameplay, uh, you know that that's that's yeah. something that uh, that that that's just something I saw in Trudeau, Actually, uh, we had three different versions of of UI that we sort of revamped um, before we went out of the soft launch and into the into the full launch. And the last uh, update, I I saw about six percent rise in D one retention. Just because uh, the nav, the UX was pretty much the same. We just changed the way it looked and colors and the theme, and uh, that just helped us six percent increase overall. So it was mind-boggling to me as well. But hey, works. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. And I think one other important thing is your user acquisition, your marketing team, or your publishing mm. team. You know. Um, Sometimes when you're making a game that is very unique, uh, probably first of its kind, you know, there's nothing like that out there. Uh, maybe you want to show your gameplay in your creatives. That just helps the user um, learn about your game before he's in the game. It's it's like your FTV even before your FTV began.
1: Yeah. No, I, I always say that too. It's like and i know we're like desperately out of time here but um you know when when a player comes in and they just churn right away it's like okay well it's not like they just churned like they had to see that ad decide that it was so interesting that they wanted to click into the game and then they were so interested by the aso and the screenshots and it looked like it was going to download the game and they actually get into it like you must have truly failed at like delivering the experience that they thought they were getting. Right. Like they had to go through all these hoops and steps to get to where they are. It's not like, you know, oh, you know, they just churned out. It's like, no, we, we failed them in some way, but, uh, this is great. I love this. Well, uh, if uh, folks want to get in contact with you about anything, is there a a good way for them to do that? Uh,
2: my email ID, I guess. That's, uh, That's fine. That's fine.
1: Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yes, it was was a pleasure being on your podcast. It was great talking to you, Tom, Uh, and I hope uh, informative as well.
1: Definitely. All right. Have a good one.
2: All right. You too. Goodbye.